the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business with Kieran Hancock, a podcast from the Irish Times. This week I'll be looking at rising rent prices with economist Ronan Lyons and Umber Kennedy of the Irish Times. And the fallout of the Qatari regime's decision on the eve of the World Cup not to allow FIFA sponsor Budweiser to sell its beer inside the stadiums hosting the event. London-based marketing consultant James Kirkham will be giving us his take on this embarrassing standoff for FIFA. But we'll start with rents. A report out this week from property website daft.ie showed a double-digit increase in advertised rents nationally in the third quarter when compared to the same period of last year. And the number of properties advertised for rent was at a record low since the series began in 2006. To discuss what's going on in the market and what impact the forecast economic slowdown might have, I'm joined on the line now by the report's author, Ronan Lyons, and by Owen Kennedy of the Irish Times. I began by asking Owen to take me through the headline figures in the report. So on Tuesday, we had property website daft.ie's latest quarterly report on the rental market here, and it um, suggested that uh, the level of rent inflation was now at record levels on the on the back of an extreme shortage of rental homes. So it uh, its report is based on asking prices for properties uh, listed on its website, and that's an important distinction I'll, I'll come back to in a moment. But it indicated that rents nationally were on average 14.1% higher in the third quarter of this year than they were in the same period last year. So that was the highest level of annual rent inflation recorded by Daft since it started reporting on the Irish market in 2006. So Daft said there was just 1,087 homes available for rent on its website as of November 1st, down 25% on the same date last year. In Dublin, the picture was even starker. The website said there was just 345 homes listed for rent at the beginning of November this year. So pretty stark reading um, in terms of the actual rents, uh, the asking price for rents in the third quarter, the average was €1,698 per month, up 4.3% on the second quarter and 120% up on the low of €765 per month seen in late 2011. In Dublin, market rents were uh, on average rising year on year by 14.3%, slightly higher than the national average. And the average asking price for rent in the third quarter was €2,258 a month. In the cities of Cork, Galway, rents were rising at 12% and 16.4%. Average rents there in both cities were €1,700 a month, roughly. So a pretty grim picture of the rental market. Yeah, Ronald Lyons, a lot of people might be surprised to hear that rents have gone up by, on average, uh, 14% across the country. When we have these rent pressure zones, and I know they don't apply to the whole country, but they certainly apply um, to large parts of Dublin, don't they? And that caps the rent at about 2% a year, doesn't it? So just explain to us um, how you come to a calculation of 14% and the dynamics behind the, the DAFT report. Yeah, I, I think the, uh, and Owen touched on it there, is that what we're looking at here are open market rents. Um, and there's a difference between open market rents and the rent paid by a sitting tenant. In theory, the rent pressure zones apply whether you're a sitting tenant or a moving a new tenant. Uh, in practice, of course, that could never be the case. I mean, what tenant, at the, or sorry, what would be tenant, I guess that's the key distinction, what would be tenant at the top of a queue of 100 people outside a property is going to say to the landlord, yeah, I'll take it, but only if you can prove to me the rent is no more than um, 2% higher than what it was you charged the last tenant. If you talk to someone in the open market today, they literally do not care what the last tenant was paying. They just wanted somewhere to live. 
So in that sense, rent pressure zones are very good for the insiders, people who have a tenancy, because they can police their rent quite well. But they're very bad for outsiders because they encourage people to stay longer in the in their in their existing tenancy. So they reduce mobility and mobility for renters is often more important than mobility for owner occupiers because of life cycle reasons. So uh, you're you're um, reducing mobility in the rental market, reducing available supply in the open market and making it worse for those who are unfortunate enough to have to move. So coming back to your your question. Uh, how is it that we're seeing increases this big? Well, it's 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 this way because it's looking specifically at open market rents. There's a, a part of the report where we look at rents paid by by sitting tenants, what we call the stayers index, as opposed to the movers index. And and if you're um, if if you have stayed in the same um, property over the last six years, on average your rent might have gone up by fifteen, maybe twenty percent. Um, effectively in line with with rent pressure zones, uh, whereas if you have uh, had to suppose you you were moving around the same time, and um, your rent would have gone up by about seventy five percent, and I think that's a legacy of the rent pressure zone system um, in creating that insider outsider dynamic um, and exacerbating a supply shortage. Now, Ronan Owen mentioned uh, the fact that there are only just over a thousand uh, units currently on the daft website or that was the case at the beginning of november and that's uh, uh, you know pretty much a a record low why has the stock of available places to rent why why has it dropped to such a low level and Maybe if you go back to pre-pandemic times, how many how many places would have been available for rent on Daft? Yeah, great question. If you go to say the late 2010s, 2015 to 2019, that was a period when the market was short on supply. You know, rents were being pulled up and at a reasonably brisk rate, you know, seven, eight, nine percent per year in the open market. But at that point in time, you'd have seen, depending on the year you pick, between four and five thousand homes available to rent at any particular point in time. And in Dublin, about fifteen hundred. And I remember writing when it was about fifteen hundred that this is a this is a low for Dublin looking back over sort of the course of fifteen years. Now the pandemic disrupted that a little bit and in Dublin, there was a kind of a resurgence in availability um, over the course of 2020 into early 2021 because um, uh, effectively the, the 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 city was was closed. Um, but once it once it reopened, um, availability I guess fell off a cliff. That the the strength of demand that has uh, reemerged after society reopened in early 2021 has driven the overall national figure from four or five thousand down to basically one thousand it's actually a little bit lower over the course of the summer and in dublin it's gone from um uh say between 13 or and 1500 to two or 300 um in the in the last few months and that's you, you know that's that's there's uh, there are data that back up the anecdotes you see uh, you know there's been a few stories over the last number of months where um you can see just the incredible strength of demand and the weakness of supply um, uh, Connor Skeen was talking yesterday about the you know the, the the departure of of some of the existing landlord stock, the people who might have either been um, investors but at a particular you know uh, age cohort, and they've got to a point now where they want to sell up, um, or accidental landlords, people who bought during the the Celtic Tiger years and ended up having a rental property which was never their intention, um, and the the departure of of those um, uh, rental properties, I think hasn't been fully offset by the new built-to-rent stock, as in um, it's my suspicion we've lost more rental stock um, in that way than we've added in in new bills over the last couple of years. Um, And unfortunately, the only solution to this, if you've got a booming economy, um, the only solution to it is to to build new homes, including new rental homes. 
Um, and I think that's unfortunately a, a longer term solution that the government at the moment is not too keen on. Yeah, on that point, Umber Kennedy, and um, we had some data out this week from uh, Goodbody Stockbrokers or an analysis of the housing starts uh, data, which shows that things are beginning to uh, slow down a little bit and that the government isn't likely to meet the targets um, that, that were set out in its its housing for all plan. Yeah, well, not unexpected. I mean, construction inflation has uh, lipped up a big uh, amount in the last 12 months, uh, as inflation has generally. So that's obviously going to uh, weigh on on the, the viability of certain projects. And then just the, the general economic outlook is probably going to dampen the appetite, uh, you know, in certain development quarters. So uh, commencements are down. They don't, you know, that's just, just one measure. But, uh, you know, what Roland said earlier on was the, the fact that new builds is really the key area in all of this equation. Um, you know, there's been two big massive trends in housing globally over the last few years. And one is that price has become kind of decoupled from income. And it's become a, a kind of income is because a price become a multiple of income and people are finding it harder to buy. That's pushed more people into the rental market. And at the same time, the government's uh, building programs have dwindled and fallen compared to previous eras. So that's put double pressure on the rental market. So the problem, as, as Ronan alluded to, is that we're just not building enough and the government is relying increasingly on rental supports, which is putting more pressure on the private sector market. So there's a really tight squeeze going on and that's why we're seeing uh, rent price inflation soaring and that's why we're seeing these like tiny figures for the available properties to rent on uh, Daft and other websites. Roland, if you can get an average rent in Dublin, if you can, as a landlord, if you can secure an average rent in Dublin of, say, €2,200, why are so many small landlords leaving the market? I think, as I said, to go back to what, what I was saying earlier, I think there are those, and I mentioned Conor Skinner earlier, who argued that it's it's the, sort of the constant um, barrage of regulations and taxation that's that's doing it. And, and, and I'm not saying that's not a factor. I think what's probably just as important a factor is how and when did those people become landlords in the first place? Um, so if you have, a, you know, not to not to do a caricature, but suppose you've got a retired guard in the late 90s and he, he, he buys a couple of properties um, as, as an investment. Um, at this stage, you know, 25 years on, do, you know, if, if you're in your late 70s, do you really want to be, you know, running? Um, that could be if you've got, say, two houses, which you've, you've, you've broken into four or five units each. Do you really want to be running 10 um, homes? Uh, in your late seventies, probably not. You're looking for the right time to get out. And similarly, if you're if you were in your your twenties and you bought a a one bed or a two bed in two thousand and five and thought you were going to sell it in twenty ten and, uh, and and you you weren't able to, um, do you still want to carry that? Um, some might, but I think many won't. Um, and so I think a lot of the departure um, of what you might call, and I don't mean this in a pejorative way, you might call the the amateur landlord class and the smaller scale landlords. Um, has been because it was never their intention to be their job in, in, in the first place. And they sort of ended up there by mistake. Um, and that's, that's, I'm not saying that's a good thing that they're leaving, but it's also not entirely unpredictable. Um, it, it, it would, it, if you look at the RTB they had, with Amoruk, they had done surveys of the, the rental sector and quite a significant chunk of, of rental stock in the country is there by accident rather than by design. Um, and, and therefore, it's, I, I guess, really important for government to have a policy, particularly if it's considering getting rid of the bill to rent code, which I think looks likely. I don't know what Owen thinks about that. It looks likely I think the government's going to get rid of um, or drastically amend the bill to rent code. 
if that was plan A and we've decided against plan A, then we need a plan B rather than let's not have built to rent and also lose some of our existing rental stock at a time of really strong rental demand. That is a recipe for 10 more years of, of rental chaos. Yeah, what is the latest on the built to rent front on? Well, it seems like the government is kind of um, becoming kind of lukewarm on the issue and, and Ronan probably has eyes on, on just where it's actually going, but it seems that there's been a lot of criticism that the funds are building, um, you know, high-end apartments in city centre areas, uh, charging high rents and, you know, most of the market and most of the incomes out there just can't afford uh, the rents in these places. There's suggestions that... Um, some of the big city centre apartment blocks are are not even uh, fully rented out and the funds who are borrowing cheaply, have been borrowing cheaply, can afford to have a certain amount of vacancy. So the critics of the government housing policy would would say that, you know, we're we're building the the kind of wrong houses in the wrong, um, not necessarily in the wrong places, but, um, you know, wage disparity in city centre areas is is quite stark, d- despite what you might read about the headline figures. And it's just not obvious that many people on average wages can afford the rents that uh, these funds are charging in their Hyatt uh, city apartments. Yeah, Ronan, on the built to rent sector, I mean, obviously we've big landlords like IRES and uh, Kennedy Wilson, but there are others in the built to rent or PRS uh, sector, depending on how you want to describe it. They've been painted in certain quarters as the baddies in this uh, whole scenario. What's your view? Because obviously they're the ones who've been bringing the new stock to the market over the past uh, 10 years. Um, They bought up a lot of these assets uh, post the 2008 crash. So I guess they got some of them for a song and they've been doing very well out of it. And as Owen said, they are high-end apartments, but they're also very expensive uh, apartments. There's two, yeah, there's two um, groups, I think. There's the group that, that bought stock um, post-Celtic Tiger. Um, um, and that's that's one category. And that was probably largely done by 2013 or 2014. And then there was a few years where not much happened. Um, and then since 2019, there's been the um, the projects that, you know, hadn't even been dreamt, dreamt up during the time of the Celtic Tiger that got started in the last couple of years. It's, they have started to come on stream. And say, you know, if you look at um, Capital Dock, which is talked about quite a lot, it's 190 apartments in there. It's 180 active leases. You know, it's not obvious that these are, you know, there's a, there's a kind of a myth around that these are being sort of cynically left empty. Um, and you go around and, you know, from what we can see, um, looking at RTB figures and others, you're talking about at least 95% occupancy and in some cases effectively fully occupied. So there's, that's... that. They're expensive for uh, probably a combination of two reasons. It's, um, um, it is expensive to build in Ireland anything. It's expensive to build any kind of property compared to other countries uh, and indeed compared to our, to our own incomes. It's also um, the case that we have, and no doubt for good reasons, but we have minimum standards that are at least as high as our peers in Europe and probably in the, in the, in the top end of the, um, the minimum specifications in terms of whether it's the... Um, the, the the minimum size the or the the internal layout the balconies the ceiling heights the car parking space provisions um, the lift provisions all of those things we we compare quite favorably um, but each of those adds a cost and that's not to say we shouldn't be doing them but we should at least be aware um, that we are when we have these standards that it means that the new units are going to be expensive and therefore they're going to be affordable for the top X percent of the the income distribution but I guess the key point is. Just to take Dublin for a second, and sorry to kind of narrow it down, but Dublin is about 150,000 rental homes. How do we ease the pressure on those 150,000 rental homes? 
Well, if we add 50,000 new builds, even if they're targeted at the top third of the income distribution, the pressure will be less on those existing 150,000 than if those new 50,000 didn't get built. And I think that's the key point, that there is a pipeline of, it's probably not 50,000, it's probably about 40,000 that we're working through. And maybe only 30,000 of those will actually happen because of what's happened building costs over the last 12 months or so. Um, but but the, the, the rest of the rental market will be better for having those 30 or 40,000 units built than if we don't build them. Now, I would say we need 70,000 units in Dublin and we need about the same number in the rest of the country combined. Um, but I will certainly take half of that in Dublin um, rather than nothing at all in terms of easing the pressure on the system. But Ronan, what about this point that if, uh, let's say you have a scheme of 200 apartments and it's all bills uh, to rent, that it really locks people, um, local people, it locks them out of the market for buying houses or buying apartments, uh, etc. Why why not free up some of these uh, schemes for people to be able to buy? And that's what some of the local authorities have been looking at in their development plans, isn't it? Yeah, and I think, to be honest, I think it's a fundamental misunderstanding of housing need. We are not talking about either ors. The scale of housing need in this country is well above policy targets. It's not the case that we should stop building rental housing and only build owner-occupied or only build social. We need to build lots of all three types of housing. It is impractical, it is financially dangerous to demand a 22-year-old buy an apartment to live in that they were not going to need for, for more than two years. We will need to have rental accommodation for people in their 20s because it's a life cycle need. The, the, the share of the population that's going to be in their 20s and early 30s that wants to rent, is, it's a non-trivial share and we do not have the rental stock at the moment. It is, it's fair for local authorities to say, okay, across the spectrum of housing, are we getting enough market, um, rental, social rental, owner-occupied. I don't think it's fair to say to companies that in every other city in Europe provide rental housing. In Dublin or in Cork or wherever, you're going to have to change your business model to suit us. I think that's misunderstanding the scale of housing need and the way that housing is provided. Um, So I, 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 um, I I feel quite passionate about ensuring the fate making sure that we can provide housing, not just for, I mean, housing policy in Ireland is obsessed with people who are married and just about to have kids, right? Uh, You can kind of reduce housing policy just to that bit in your life. But we, if you think of, of a life cycle of housing need now, people will turn 18, they go to college, they're going to need student accommodation. After college, they're going to need urban core apartments that they're going to rent. After that, they might move um, in with a partner before they have kids. After the kids have grown up, they're going to um, need downsizer accommodation, independent living, assisted living. There's a whole variety of housing need out there. And by excessively focusing on people just about to have children, we have already painted ourselves into a corner. 85% of our housing stock is houses, but 50% of our households are one or two persons. Every other country in Europe has about 50% of its housing stock and apartments. We are already completely mismatched. Now, in fairness, your question was about um, tenure rather than apartments versus houses. Can we, can we allow people to buy them as well as, uh, as well as to rent them? And absolutely, if it's viable, people will, will, will build them and, and sell them. The challenge is, and it goes back to the cost issue, if you want um, the sector to build apartments for sale, it has to be affordable. And that's the big challenge at the moment. It has to be the case that costs relative to incomes are, are in proportion and they've gone out of proportion. They were out of proportion anyway. And the last um, 12 to 18 months hasn't helped. And Ronan, in your view, like what's going to happen on the apartment scene over the next few years? Because obviously, on the one hand, we have a very difficult, difficult global economic backdrop. We're told that a lot of the major economies could slip into recession next year and there's going to be 
a drop in consumer demand in Ireland, we won't be immune to whatever goes on uh, globally. And on the other hand, just at a practical level locally, we have um, Borplanola's um, in flux, I think it's fair to say, because a number of senior people um, have left. And um, Borplanola has um, agreed to a number of uh, schemes that were approved for planning. Um, it is agreed uh, that, that to extinguish those uh, planning permissions. So they have to go through uh, the process again. These are um, strategic housing developments. So these are 100 plus unit um, developments. And a lot of them are going to have to go through the process again. And we've got construction, inflation and all the other factors at play. So maybe some of these uh, apartment schemes that were on the drawing books uh, a couple of years ago, maybe they won't get built. So how do we square the circle in terms of the need for uh, more accommodation when we have all of those external factors at play? I think for me, the Department of Housing and the, and the policy system more generally has to be laser focused on that question of, of whether it's for profit or non-profit. How many resources do we need? What's the, what is the, the break-even cost of providing new housing? How far up the income distribution do you have to be to afford that? Because if you, don't, if you can't answer that question, you have no sense of where the boundary between viability and affordability is. Right, viability could be well above affordability. Right? That's one of the reasons people are criticizing Bill to Rent is that it's affordable for people, say, of a certain income, but it's not affordable for people with an average income. Um, but if the, the government has, with, a, I guess, a, a, um, an important change in recent months, but the government has largely ignored the question of viability. It is not interested in getting involved in, in policing construction costs. And yet it is already doing that. Its decisions ultimately set construction costs in this country. It's responsible for setting wage rates in the construction sector. And for example, if it introduces a concrete levy, that's going to affect um, the, the cost of, of, of building a home. I said there's an important exception in recent months. The, the, there is work underway, finally, to, to compare the cost of building homes in, in, in Ireland with, with some of our peers in Europe. If that's at the level of detail where we can start to go in and go, why is it the case you know, that, that it costs, say, 30% more to build the exact same home in Dublin than in Amsterdam? If we can get into that level of detail, then policy can start targeting the actions that will, will, will make it viable to build. But going back to the start of your question, I am quite concerned about the next couple of years. We will get a certain amount of homes built. We will certainly be able to churn out lots more three and four bed semi-Ds. The policy system is very supportive of, of um, people transitioning into owner occupancy. And I'm not, I, I don't mean to say that they shouldn't be doing that. My um, anger or passion comes from we also need to be uh, ensuring that we're providing the other kinds of homes um, that we need as a society as well. Owen, we've seen a lot of layoffs in the tech sector recently. Just wondering, a lot of those people probably renting, um, a lot of them probably foreign nationals as well who came to Ireland and had certain skills that were uh, important to the tech companies. Just wondering if their departures um, or the, the layoffs might take some steam out of the, the market here, whether some of those uh, people, um, foreign nationals, might return home or go elsewhere looking for work. Uh, and, you know, in a funny sort of a way uh, we don't like to see anybody lose their job obviously but in a funny sort of a way it might actually take some of the steam out of the rental market yeah well in theory you could say that i mean the interesting thing is you know ronan's uh, point about uh, viability and affordability i think is is very crucial it's, it's right on the money and a lot of the new build apartments the high-end ones seem to be you know well suited to people working for multinationals uh, in terms of wages and a lot of the uh, more local workers obviously maybe feel chunted out of the market on, on those uh, price levels. The layoffs in the tech sector more so points to a kind of global downturn that may depress the economy in general. 
they've been sporadic. There's maybe a few hundred. It's too early to say if it would really have any impact on the housing market in Dublin. The bigger point is just what it what it says about where the economy, the global economy, and Ireland's high tech sector is kind of going in general, and what that might mean for the wider economy. You know, I did two reports yesterday, uh, the OECD and uh, the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. They're both pointing to a real sharp slowdown in growth. We're not going to go into a recession, but we're going to see a compression in real wages of around 5%. That's probably the biggest compression in real wages we've had since the austerity days over a decade ago. So we're going to, it's going to feel like a recession for a lot of households in this country over the next six months. Finally, Ronan, what's, what's your view on... Uh, if there is a global recession or if some of the big economies like the UK and Germany and so on, maybe the US, if they go into recession, what impact will that have on Ireland and on the labour market here? Yeah, I mean, as, as Owen mentioned, I think the the what we've seen so far, well, concerning is relatively small scale. You know, if you look at, at Dublin alone, IDA says the number of FDI jobs in Dublin has gone from about 82,000 in 2010 to probably 160,000 this year. You know, does it, does it go back from 160 to 158 or to 155? There's still, you know, you, you're not talking about, for example, solving the housing shortage by getting rid of a couple of thousand um, employees from the kind of born online firms. In terms of the wider economy, though, clearly, if well, the housing system looks less exposed than in other countries, all right. um, by and large, existing homeowners are on fixed rate mortgages, at least for a couple more years. And um, uh, the central bank's um, rules, as they are until the end of the year, are the strictest in, in Europe. Um, that, that, that exposure to the financial side um, is, is less of a concern. That's, of course, the thing we worry about quite a lot, because that's the thing that really hit the Irish economy in the um, uh, 15 years ago. Um, but the the the... The business model that Ireland has developed um, has been to rely on a reasonably small number of firms. Now, the idea is doing the best it can. Um, it has lots of small projects rather than a few big ones right, on, on purpose. But ultimately, it comes down to a couple of, of, of sectors, a couple of spaces. Um, it, the unwritten bit of 2007 to, 2000, to 2012 was that actually by being in financial services and pharmaceuticals in particular, we actually our, our trading sector weathered the storm quite well. Um, it's not obvious that, that that would happen in in this recession. If the um, online services firms are among the worst hit, then Ireland will be kind of front and centre for the the places that will be will be badly affected. In terms of the wider economy, it, it's hard. It's it's very hard to parse the the tea leaves, so to speak, um, when you look at all the built up savings over the course of of, of COVID. The, the Irish household sector is 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 quite well. Um, set on aggregate, but of course, as Owen mentioned, it's the distributional issues. It's it's it might be fine if you're as a household on a hundred grand or more a year, um, but if you're on if you're on less, um, I think the next eighteen months or so is going to feel very very tight. And finally, finally, Ronan, um, is there is there any chance that rents in this market might actually? stabilize or even go down um it, let's say the uh, the economy uh, there's no recession and the economy continues to to grow and we we get all of the supply we need is there any chance that rents are going to soften here okay so i'm an, i'm a natural born optimist so i will do my best to be optimistic on a closing note if you're a sitting tenant the the setup is very much in your favor right you have rent increases capped at 2% and inflation is significantly above that. Your real rent is falling, as in your inflation-adjusted rent is falling. 
The challenge is where people, for whatever reason, they're moving around the country, moving around the city, they're moving to the country or the city, they have to go in the open market. I cannot see, even with the, even if Dublin does get the 30,000 units that are in its built-to-rent pipeline, I, I, I cannot see how that alone would be enough to bring rents down from their, their current level, as in the sufficient demand to gobble up those 30,000 homes and then some. Um, so, unfortunately, um, on, on the open market rent side, I, I think we'll be talking about these problems for, for years to come. Um, the, the question is, will we be talking about them for three years or eight years or 15 years? That comes down to what the government does now. If it gets rid of built rent but puts in something equivalent, something that helps the supply of rental housing, and not just in Dublin, um, then it'll be a three-year issue and we'll be having a much different discussion in five years' time. I worry that that's not going to happen and we'll be having the same kind of discussion in five years' time about a chronically starved rental sector. Yes, I, I suspect you're right, but we'll be happy for you to come on in five years' time, Ronan, and to have another <laughs> chat about it. I think, I think I've just volunteered, yeah. <laughs> okay, Ronan Lyons and Umberg Kennedy, thank you for joining us. We're going to take a short break now. When I return, I'll be talking to marketing consultant James Kirkham about Budweiser's sponsorship issues at the World Cup in Qatar. Back in a few moments. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Welcome back. This is Inside Business with Kieran Hancock. Now, last week, Qatar's ruling family decided on the eve of the World Cup that it didn't want alcohol sold in the stadiums hosting the tournament. This dramatic move put AB InBev, the maker of Budweiser beer, in a tricky position, having reportedly paid $77 million to FIFA for the pouring rights to the tournament. James Kirkham is the founder of London-based marketing consultancy Iconic, and he's previously worked on big-ticket campaigns with some of the world's biggest brands. He gives me his take on how the legal row is likely to play out behind the scenes and the implications for sponsors of backing major events in states such as Qatar. I began by asking him to give his view on the Qatari decision on Budweiser. I think what's happened with this World Cup, um, with a lot of brands, but specifically with the Budweiser incident, shall we say, is kind of unprecedented. So I think a lot of people perhaps misunderstand. They perhaps assume that brands kind of sleepwalk clumsily into a competition and then are suddenly caught off guard uh, by the sort of the ebb and flow or the whims of the World Cup. Now, nothing could be further from the truth. These are highly sophisticated brands. They are on huge cycles of sponsorship. Many are in it for years, often decades. So they are planned to the nth degree. What's happened here, though, is unprecedented. The sort of agreement between FIFA uh, and the Qatari government pretty much obviously explicitly said that there was an exemption to their sort of non-alcohol norm, which meant Bud could, of course, sell within the stadia. Thus, a more traditional sponsorship looked feasible, just like any other World Cup where you can go and buy a beer. The fact that this was removed with, I think, 48 hours notice before game number one is pretty startling. I think what um, what's interesting here with a, with a brand like Budweiser is they are sort of super slick marketing machines now. So again, it isn't that they're coming off bad. 
on the contrary. And this is where brands, again, perhaps are underestimated in years like now, where the quality of the people in-house, the sophistication of the social publishers that they work alongside, the expert agency teams too. It means brands are pretty adept at dealing with even the most sort of absurd of situations as has been presented here. So I think um, almost within 24 hours, Budweiser had put out a, a social post with a huge kind of container of crates of Bud and effectively saying, whoever wins, wins the beer. So rather than get drawn into the obviously intense legal negativity that must be going on behind the scenes, what a consumer, what a punter, what a, a beer drinking kind of fan of the World Cup is seeing is their brand being quite smart, being quite swift, making almost light of the situation, which is probably not something they are that uh, up for doing when they're seeing such an amazingly, uh, amazingly important shift. And I guess that's a big thing with this World Cup full stop. This is a tightrope for all brands involved. Nobody can dispute that. Nobody can underestimate that. But how they can be smart and switch the tonality and how they can act swiftly, inserting themselves into conversations when they need to, like they did there, or removing themselves from connotations of negativity or, or issues that they don't want to be involved with. That's why that brand needs to act like these slick machines that they so often are these days. James, just explain to us uh, what Budweiser typically would get uh, in terms of bang for buck from something like the World Cup. If there, it's been reported that they're um, that they've spent seventy seven million dollars on this uh, sponsorship, what kind of return would they be looking for uh, from that kind of spend? It's quite simply the biggest moment um, in any uh, given year, and arguably, you know, World Cup is every four years. It's the biggest moment in that entire cycle. So this level of sponsorship, remember, when you go and sponsor something like football, it's the ultimate common denominator. Even the scenes we're seeing in the World Cup now with the issues and the context around it, you're seeing insane scenes of joy, of euphoria, of that kind of emotion tipping over the edge, that coming together, that unity that you just can't get in many instances full stop. Sports like football is one, perhaps music too. But other than that, there is nothing that unifies the world quite like a World Cup, nothing like that expression of emotion. Now, if you are a brand like Budweiser, and there are others, of course, that want to sort of tie your flag to that mast to be about unity and that coming together and a camaraderie, there's nothing like it. So that sort of spend is probably dwarfed by the return, not just in terms of dollars thanks to the purchasing of the beers at the stadia up and down the country but all of the net net value on top of it being a part of every conversation being able to say the fifa world cup every time being able to talk it up being on on pack promo being in store promo and every single social stream too every single photo and shot with a bud in the hand like you can only uh, imagine the level of scale if you like of of uplift that a brand normally gets. So it's a big deal when something like a, a competition or the owners of the competition or the, the people about the country themselves suddenly renege on that agreement. That's a huge thing. And as I say, I think Budweiser are handling themselves currently in a very smart and adept fashion where the consumers don't really care. They know, but they're certainly not seeing negativity associated with the brand. In fact, there's only a shadow of negativity right now around a country. So what do you think is going on behind the scenes uh, between Budweiser legally and, uh, and FIFA uh, in terms of the agreement that they had? 
I mean, I dread to think, as you say, the we are talking tens of millions of dollars. Um, you would assume that it's a full-on now legal case being built and a subsequent battle. At the end of the day, there's some real basics here. A brand has spent an awful lot of money getting a sponsorship asset and being the only brand in that category to own it. And there is a simplicity around that product of we need to serve the product. <laughs> if the agreement said otherwise and said that is not a, not able, that's a legit conversation. Four years ago, no, eight years ago, when this was first understood to be in a Muslim country where, of course, alcohol is commonly understood not to be. If it was understood at that point that alcohol would not be served and it was only, for example, a 0.0 product, they might still be involved, but at least they would absolutely renegotiate and, you know, reappraise the entire content and structure of that deal because it's a game-changing deal-breaker. To come out 24 hours, 48 hours prior to match number one, clearly FIFA didn't realise that either, but unfortunately it will be FIFA who will be held to account by the lawyers. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the next World Cup is going to be in the United States, Canada, Mexico, and I think Budweiser's deal with FIFA uh, is up for renewal, essentially, after this tournament. So it's going to be a very interesting negotiation because you would imagine that Budweiser, given it's his home market, Budweiser would want to be all over uh, the World Cup in North America. I mean, 2026 has been talked about for a long time. I started working specifically in football in 2016. I was in it for four years and it was talked about then, 10 years prior. It's absolutely the biggest part of the World Cup, you know, for an awfully long time for the reasons that you've just mentioned, for the multiple locations, for the incredible North American market, it is going to be commercially white hot. However, exactly right, I believe what you're saying is true. I think this World Cup, even more than what happened in Russia, Russia was a lot of people, and I was there, I was fortunate enough to be there, it was joyous celebrations in the streets, but a lot of us turned a blind eye. Or perhaps we were hopeful that it might have an effect on, you know, questionable governments and so on. Now, We've since seen that that's ludicrous and it's done nothing of the sort and the World Cup came and went and uh, the government is still thinking in the same way that they always did. Perhaps this one's going to be a little bit different where the fact that a tournament can shift on a sixpence like that and can change so instantly and even pull the rug from a sponsor, we might see a slight unravelling and undoing from what has otherwise been a done deal for FIFA for so many years. Brands come in, spend hundreds of millions of dollars. FIFA keeps rolling on with relative ease. I think if if Infantino, as it, well, we won't even talk about his speech, but he's come out since and talked about, you know, he would put, he would consider North Korea as a location if it meant unifying the world. Well, I'm pretty sure a bunch of sponsors aren't going to be quite so willing to get involved if they think there is that ability to just turn up at one town, be at the whims of a government or a regime that the world are questioning and that could potentially harm or damage their product or brand or sponsorship. I'm not sure there's going to be that coalition of the willing as there has been up until now. Do brands actually make money out of something like the FIFA World Cup, given their charge so much? Huge. I mean, we're talking about, you know, brands like a bud and a beer and a product. But of course, look at the sports apparel brands, you know, Addy and Nike, Adidas and Nike have been sort of using the World Cup as the ultimate leverage for so many years. Adidas famously are the sponsor, in inverted commas. They are part of the stadia. 
Uh, but but Nike almost sort of have this um, rule that they are the streets, they are part of culture, but they are still very much using it at that time. They put their biggest television spend right at that time. They leverage the biggest talent the planet has got to offer right at that time. They get and try and get their indelible mark into culture because at the end of the day, right now, right this second, they are selling an awful lot of shirts, an awful lot of boots from kids to grown-ups and everyone in between. So this is a massive moment for brands. They get an unbelievable amount out of it. I just believe that we're perhaps reaching a little tipping point and a crossroad because of what's occurred, where it might not be the ease of in- entry, if you like, and the ease of spend that FIFA have witnessed before, certainly while Infantino uh, speaks like he does on the public stage. And James, finally, uh, we could possibly be on the cusp of a global recession. Um, There are fears that the likes of the United States, uh, Britain, Germany, uh, these countries are going to tip into recession next year. We've got uh, soaring inflation right across the world. What impact will that have on uh, brand sponsorships for major tournaments uh, like FIFA, the Olympic Games or or others uh, going forward? I think it's a great question because a lot of the brands that I'm speaking to at the moment and the media agencies alike are realising that they can't simply act blinkered. So many brands speak of a beautiful euphoria or a wonderful celebratory tone, for example, whatever the brand or the product or the service that they're offering. The cold hard reality right now, as you're rightly pointing out, is we're going to go into one, maybe two years, perhaps more stark even than what people experienced in the pandemic, where people simply can't go out. You can't, you know, you might not be able to afford that beer in that bar where staying in becomes new going out and there is a whole new set of social norms where, frankly, sticking the heating on is a treat. Now, the reason, therefore, brands have to be watchful and careful is they can't appear tone deaf. They can't appear to just kind of say, ignore all the problems, but still come and get involved in our lovely, luxuriating brand or our beautiful premium this. It will just be not not only tone deaf, but it will start to turn people off of the brand or at worst, create a negative response. So there will be issues full stop from the punter, from the consumer side, also about how brands activate those tournaments. As I say, many of them are already tied in. They would have sort of done these deals long before. So a lot of those brands will be already looking that, you know, a couple of years in advance. But how they activate, I think, will be even more interesting. They might be already having to spend at the same levels, but how they act and activate a tournament when times are so tough and people, the layman, the man on the street and the, the, the kind of the common fan are dealing with a very specific set of issues. How a brand appears to relate to that, you know, the common fan, that will be a different place entirely. OK, James Kirkham, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. OK, that's it for this week from Inside Business. My thanks to Ronan Lyons, Owen Burke Kennedy and James Kirkham. The show was produced by Adrian Finnegan with JJ Vernon on sound. Thanks also to our sponsor EY for its continued support. Remember, as a subscriber to the Irish Times, you can get the latest business news straight into your inbox by signing up to our Business Today email at irishtimes.com. And you can also follow the Irish Times business feed on Twitter, LinkedIn and Facebook each day. I'm Kieran Hancock. Until next time, take care.